This is Jeff from the great state of Pennsylvania, and you've tuned in to Hillbilly Horror Stories with Jerry and Tracy. And take it from this Yankee. After just one episode of this show, you'll be talking with a twang in your voice and some southern hospitality deep in your soul. So sit back, turn off the lights, and enjoy the story. Take it away, guys. Welcome to episode 39 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. It's hard to remember which number. I can't believe we're almost to 40. I know. It's amazing. I got something special planned for episode 40. Uh, not really. Not really. It's not going to be any special. But 39, let's talk about episode 39, because I think this is probably the most fascinating, interesting story that I've ever read up on. And I'm not just talking about for the show. I mean, in general. Uh, out of every story I've ever seen on the paranormal, this one I found the most fascinating. Oh, Awesome. Can't wait to hear it. And obviously, my name is Jerry, and I'm joined by my lovely wife, Tracy. Thank you for saying lovely. I have to. It says it in the um, the promo oh. that plays. Well, hi, everybody. We just finished having our big week of Kentucky Derby here. So the race is over. We didn't win, but it's always a good time in Kentucky. Yeah, it's definitely a um, two weeks of lead up for a two-minute race here it's always <laughs> it's amazes me how much gets put into a two-minute race yeah it's a lot of fun though we want to uh, have a couple of shout outs we sometimes we do them at the end sometimes we do them at the beginning but we actually have a bunch of them we're going to breeze through them but we've we want to start off by giving a big shout out to our, all of our military and civil service people across the world thank you guys for protecting us yes thank you so much i i feel like you don't get praised enough as it is but um we really we really do appreciate y'all putting your lives on the line for us and protecting us. And we always have a special prayer for you every night. Absolutely. And um, we'll actually tie some of that in a little bit later. Uh, and I'll tell you when we get to that point. But some of the other shout outs I want to start off with. I got one special one. Uh, this one comes with a little bit of request. Chelsea and Daniel uh, Anaya out in California. They're going through a really tough emotional time right now. And if everybody could send their uh, special thoughts and their heartfelt uh, prayers and Good positive vibes. vibes out their way. I'm sure they would greatly appreciate it. We got you, girl. I want to say hi to Caitlin in Australia, but not to Dana Lee Gleason. I'm not saying hi to Dana. I'm only saying hi to Caitlin. <laughs> Why? <laughs> She'll understand. Oh, well, She's, I'll say she, hi to you. Dana's greedy. Dana. <laughs> Dana wants to be mentioned every show, so she got mentioned. Aww. It just probably wasn't the way she needed it. And Ninja farted. What? Can you not smell that? No, don't say that. I just had my mouth open real wide laughing. That's disgusting. My God. I still love you, Ninja. I think that dog's been eating skunk and burnt hair or something. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's gross. <laughs> a couple of the other shout-outs. Let's go through real quick. Uh, Matthew Henley. He's from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, for home of Brett Favre. No. That's at least where he played college. I don't oh, know is that where, right? I don't I know, know where that. he was from. Oh. Here, here's a little tidbit for you, uh, Matthew. Besides you guys coming into Commonwealth and beating my cats last year, that was actually like four days after my surgery. I had to endure that. So thank you guys for that. Oh. But I actually saw Brett Favre play when he played with Southern Mississippi. I saw him beat the University of Louisville on a Hail Mary last second pass nice. that bounced off a L player's helmet into the Southern Miss player's hand. Perfect. And he ran it in for a touchdown. Perfect. So how awesome is that? So that made up for you beating us. It did not make up for that. But oh. anyway, it's at least a fond memory. We got David Crabtree. He's up in uh, Monroe, Michigan. Tyler Acox from Texas. Tyler actually sent us a, uh, a really nice email talking about he's a security guard. Mm-hmm. And he... Listens to us to help the night go by. He's a nighttime security guard, oh, so helps the night get go by. Kind of boring. Well, thank you for listening, Tyler. And I'm probably going to butcher this name, but um, Samantha Jika. She's our Tokyo listener. Oh. Not the only Tokyo listener, but she's the only one that's written us. Kelly Junk from the Netherlands. Sam, I think it's Makusa from New Jersey. Matt Jordan. He's also from Australia. This is funny because Matt's the second person from Australia to write us that drives one of these big convoy trains. It's like it's like a train, but it's tractor trailers. All, all, they're, they're all putting. They're all connected together. So what? it's yeah. That's like it's like trucks made like a train would be. So instead of being on tracks, they just drive them, but they're all connected to each other. Oh, my gosh. I and freak like, out when I see a piggyback, just one. And like I said, so he's like the second person from Australia that does that. The other young lady, her name is escaping me well, right off the bat. that's very cool. She wrote us a while back. Uh, I'm sorry I forgot your name because I'm hoping you're still listening. Then we've got um, Kaylee Ward from uh, Armorello, Texas. You wanted to sing some... Armorilla by morning. There you go. Up from San Antonio. And then you took your real name off your Twitter, so I can't remember what it is. I feel bad. But Arkansas Gray, you know who you are out there. You got all the U of L jokes. <laughs> but he also is a 24 year combat veteran. Oh, thank you, sir. So you get a special thing. And just because you've got so much military experience and you fought for us, you can actually insult me any way you want, and I'll just take it and still have the utmost respect for you. Absolutely. Thank you for your service. We've had a bunch of people actually uh, order T-shirts and make donations to the show, and I decided I wanted to give a shout-out to them. So you won't know who bought a T-shirt and who made a donation, but all these people support the show. So I want to give a a big shout-out to Shane Hoffman, Crystal Harris, Mike Sulzer, Brett Swenson, Lisa Goldman, Zach Hawkins, Molly Frias, and Daniel Sewell. Thank Woo-hoo, all you guys thanks. for helping out. You guys rock. Uh, you heard Jeffrey Fishback with, did the actual intro of the yes, show. Yes, I love up in, that. Up in uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Thank you for that, Jeff. We greatly appreciate it. And he actually uh, sent us a, a tweet saying he's checking out the guys from Don't Break the Oath podcast good, because he heard them on the good. show. Good. I'm going to give a special shout-out to Kevin Cummings. Kevin actually works at the Kentucky State Penitentiary. Oh. And he actually hooked us up with Stevie Asher. Okay. And Steve actually wrote a book called Hauntings of the Kentucky State Penitentiary. You guys can get that on Amazon uh, or anywhere else you buy books. He sent us an autographed copy of it. Really cool. Also sent us like a little uh, medal that you can 
you know, wear around your neck or something, almost like a dog tag, but it says death row on it. I don't want to wear that. Which is really cool. But that's cool, though. I'm going to wear it because... You are? Yeah, I've been on death row. Rebel? I've been on death row for the last 10 years. What? <laughs> See how he treats me, y'all? <laughs> Terrible. But we're actually going to interview Steve on the second half of the show. So that's going to be really cool. So I thought it would be cool. And that ties into the civil service because, once again, uh, Kevin is actually a corrections officer. Fits right into the civil service. Mm -hmm. And Steve used to be, and now he's an author, but he put over 20 years in. So we'll get to hear from Steve about his book. And and, uh, I know we posted something on Facebook about the Kentucky Penitentiary um, probably three, four weeks ago. I don't know, but I think he stretched that word out. He said penitentiary. Uh, It was was like Jim Carrey. Like facility, like that. That's cool, though. But the reality of it is, this is an awesome show. We wanted to get that out of the way, because I want to focus 100% on the Gary Demon House. Now, you guys, Tracy, I'm sure you're unfamiliar with it, as you are most of the stories we do. But this is the house that Zach Beggins actually purchased and then had torn down. And he's doing a documentary on it that's supposed to be in post-production, and it should be out later this year. Mm. Well, I like how you threw me under the bus, but... um, I I think everybody here is aware that you know nothing about the topics before we start. Oh. Well... Can you tell me honestly that we don't sit down at these microphones and most times you don't say, what's this week's show about? <laughs> did you not just do that? Okay, I did. I okay. did it. I, I admit it. So he must have a lot of money just to buy a house and then to burn it down or tear it down. Well, it, didn't, did. it didn't look like much of a house, so oh. I don't think it cost a whole lot of money. Well, that's probably it, good. It's probably it, worth it. And sure. it's in Gary, Indiana. And Gary, Indiana, I went to Gary probably 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there was a sign when you came into Gary that said, Welcome to Gary, Indiana, murder capital of the United States. It did not say Because that. at the time, they actually were, per capita, they had more murders than anybody, even over Detroit. And some people chipped in that were disgusted by that. They chipped in and bought the sign being sarcastic just to try to coax the the leaders there to say, look, do something about that. This is embarrassing. Well, I was going to say, why in the world would they put the that? The city didn't actually put it. But everything in Gary, you see pictures of Detroit right now with everything being boarded up. and um, But that's kind of the way it was. It's like the businesses were boarded up because they were closed. And if they were open, they had bars on every window and every door. God, it, that's and, pathetic. And... We played uh, Michael Jackson. I'll tell you about this while we're in, at the beginning. We played Michael Jackson at the beginning of the, of the show. That's a song called Ben from the early 70s. Is John Mellencamp from there? No, John Mellencamp is from uh, Seymour, Indiana. Oh, okay. So with, with Michael Jackson, the reason I chose that song is because, one, Michael Jackson is from Gary, Indiana. Yes, I did so know that. So he is their most famous resident. But also, that song, unless you're a real horror movie buff, you probably won't know. That was uh, There was a movie came out called Willard about a boy and a rat, and it was a horror movie in like 71. Well, this movie was a sequel to Willard called Ben, and they had Michael Jackson do the soundtrack. Oh, I had Or at no least he did, he did the theme song. He didn't do the whole soundtrack. Oh, because he was probably like, was he like a little kid? Yeah, he was young. He was probably 11, 12, something oh, like so that. Oh, so he still sounded like a girl yeah, at the time. Yeah, like he did when he died. He still sounded like a girl then. Oh, well, yeah, I guess. But so we chose that song because I thought it was cool because not only was it Michael Jackson, but he actually did do a song to Mm -hmm. a horror movie that I thought would tie in. So that's why we chose that song rather than Beat It or 
What about Thriller? Billy Jean or Thriller. Yeah, that Thriller probably would have worked too. But see, you didn't contribute to the show or we probably would have went that way. I would have probably chose Thriller. Well, I mean, why would you not? You, you chose a song I've never even heard of. Well, and nobody else has heard of it either. So I thought it would. The true Michael Jackson fans have heard that song. Oh. Trust me. It was a number one hit. Oh, okay. Well, and it was on his You did his good then. Hits. You did fine. I can't win. Let's just shut this whole damn thing down. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Come on with it now. Ninja's over chewing on electrical cords. It's going to be like that cat from oh my gosh. Christmas Vacation. Ninja, what are you chewing on? Get over here. All right. And you know how we are. That None of that's going to get edited out. So just that's deal true. with it. Okay. Let's jump into this story because this is awesome. Um, the Gary Demon House. So we started... All this started in November of 2011. Latoya Amons, her mother Rosa Campbell, and three children, ages 12, 9, and 7 at the time, moved into a rental house on Carolina Street. Obviously, that's in Gary, Indiana. Now, according to the Indianapolis Star, that did a huge story on this back when all this was going on, the first thing that the Amons noticed is that there was an odd, I guess, kind of Amityville like there were like several these huge horse flies you know black flies oh yeah that were gathering on the inside they had like a big screened in porch and they were gathering on the inside and swarming in there and it was like December and it was cold outside oh gosh just keep in mind if you don't know where Gary Indiana is Gary is I'm not going to say a suburb of Chicago because it's a little further away to be a, a suburb but you can get to Chicago from Gary in like 20 minutes no kidding. Yeah, it's really close. So, so it's the upper part of, of Indiana. It's um, probably about, I guess, it's Indianapolis and Chicago. It sits not really right in the middle. It's close to Chicago, but it's, it kind of gives you an idea. It's okay. past Indianapolis, not quite Chicago. And so in December, typically, it's going to be cold as hell. Oh, yeah. And to have all these flies swarming on an inside screen porch, and when I say screened, it wasn't glass screened. It was actual screened, so it was just as cold on the porch as it was outside. Oh, yeah, definitely. So that's the first thing that you notice. And, and <laughs> Rosa Campbell, which was the uh, Miss Amon's mom, she said, we kept killing them and just kept killing them, and they just kept coming back. And then uh, Rosa and, and Latoya Amons said that after midnight – they would start to hear footsteps coming up from the basement stairs and they could hear the door open, the basement door. They had a basement door in the kitchen that led. So the kitchen had the door that led down to the basement. Oh, okay. And they could hear the door, not only the footsteps, but they could hear the door opening and closing, opening and closing. And they even decided that they locked the door and they could still hear it opening and closing, even though the door was locked. Yeah. So Rosa claimed that one night she saw a shadowy figure. She got out of bed, and she found wet, really big, wet boot prints, just like on the floor, because they had hardwood floors. Uh-huh. So you could see every time there was a, a type of footprint or anything right, like that. Right. And this was something that was ongoing, so we'll hear more about that as we go. But in March 2012, at approximately 2 a.m., things took a scary turn for the worse. Most of the family was awake because there was a death in the family, so a lot of people had gathered over at the house and, you know, uh-huh. just sitting around reminiscing and stuff like you would do. And Latoya yelled out, Mama, Mama, because keep in mind Rosa Campbell was her mom. They ran into the 12-year-old daughter's room. She was levitating over the bed. Holy crap, and that's all she said was, Mama, Mama? Well, the, yeah, well, I mean, what else are you going to say? I'd be like, holy shit balls. <laughs> 
That's what I would say. And they may have said that. They just didn't print that in the paper I read. Oh. So the girl is just standing over top of it. Now, according to, to Amons and several other people that had gathered, her daughter, you know, they just kind of started praying around her, and the girl just kind of slowly lowered her way back to the bed. Now, this is something, like, keep in mind, several people saw this. So after she gets laid down to the bed again, she wakes up, but she don't remember anything. And then, you know, big shock here, the people who were at the house refused to come back to the house. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be either. And they didn't know that it was anything supernatural until all that happened. You know, they'd heard some stuff, but they just wasn't sure. So they called some local churches, uh, and most of them refused to listen. You know, that's some good old church people for you. No. You know, hey, well, we don't really care what you got to say. Um, but, you know, like... When you know that something's going on in your house that's supernatural, mm-hmm. and then you can't even get the church to listen to, what are you going to say? Eventually, they found a church that would listen to them, and after visiting the house and, and talking, they had spirits was obvious. That's what, according to the church people, they, they had some spirits mm-hmm. in the house. And they suggested, you know, cleaning with beach, bleach and ammonia, or beach. You could clean with a beach, I guess. Yeah. Oh, nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I think if uh, if that was going on in my house, I'd be trying anything. (laughs) But they said, you know, clean with bleach and ammonia uh, and then use oil to draw on all the windows. And they wanted to use olive oil to draw on the windows and the doors to draw crosses and stuff on them. And supposedly that would would help help keep the demons away. According to these people. They would also pour it on the hands and feet uh, of her kids and then make crosses on their foreheads Mm -hmm. because she wanted to make sure that her kids were safe. Yeah. Now, she reached out to two clairvoyants, and they came to the house. They went down to the basement, and they pretty much, after a short period of time, came running out of the basement. And they said that there was at least 200 spirits. Now, I don't oh, know I don't know how the hell you get a number. I mean, they do like a roll call, like at school. <laughs> okay, Beelzebub, okay, you put your hand down. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, what are you supposed to do? But to, uh, Not go in the basement, for yeah. one thing. I wouldn't have. So they came up, and then... They told them that they should move. But moving wasn't an option because, like most people, they were broke. They couldn't afford yeah. to just move. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and then sometimes the spirits catch, I mean, latch on to you anyway. Right. And so their other suggestion was, well, if you can't move, maybe you can do some kind of a temporary altar down in the basement. So that's what she did. She got an end table. She put a white sheet over it. She put a white candle, uh, a statue of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And I put it. I had an open Bible, and she opened it to Psalm ninety-one. Mm-hmm. So that's what she kind of did to try to draw stuff out. Now, her and a friend, they wore white T-shirts and put white scarves on their head, and they decided they were going to go through the house burning sulfur. She was doing like signs of the cross with the smoke and all that stuff, and then she was reading Psalm ninety-one. As they just kind of went through the house, just trying to do like a cleansing themselves. They said it worked for about three days. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then after that, all hell broke loose. So they were really mad? The spirits were really extra mad? So the family said that Latoya Oman and the three children were all possessed by demons. Their eyes would bulge out. The, The evil would just kind of speak through them. The voices would get real deep. And... So Rosa said that the demons didn't affect her any because she was born with protection. 
Oh. I don't really know what that means, but apparently she can't be possessed. So she never had any kind of um, signs of any kind of possession or anything where all the other ones did. So she said that when she was born, that it, she had like a guardian angel mm-hmm. that was attached to her, and that's that's why. But I don't know how you would know that you were oh, born. How would, yeah, how would you know that? <laughs> yeah. She probably was like, Psh, bitch, move on. That's probably what she said. <laughs> yeah. So Latoya could tell. When she was possessed, because she said she would get really lightheaded and she would get weak. Oh, so she could feel it coming on. Yeah, I guess oh, like gosh. a mig- like a migraine. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> Could you imagine? Oh, I ain't gonna be able to go out tonight. I feel a possession coming on. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! So yeah. the seven year old would sit in the closet and talk to a boy that nobody else could see. You know, he's invisible, but he would. He said that the little boy would. Tell him what it was like to be killed. Oh my gosh. So then, obviously, that's going to freak you out. Rosa said that the seven year old one time was thrown out of the bathroom, like literally, like he was standing in the bathroom and something invisible threw him out of the bathroom, hitting his sister so hard she had to go to and have stitches. Oh my God. Well, so it killed him though? No. Wait. What are you, who said anything about somebody being killed? Oh, I thought you said that guy, that kid was telling what it felt like to be killed. The invisible kid. Oh. Well. Is everybody else at home following along? I, I think I knew you said that, but I'm so, confused now. So then, the 12-year-old, which was which is the only girl of the family, uh, of, the, of the kids, she said that the 7-year-old would choke her, hold her down, and then he would have this weird voice come out of him, almost demonic, and say that she wouldn't live for another 20 minutes and she would never see her family again. What a little shithead. He obviously uh, needed a spanking. He needed a, yeah. Some nights were so bad that they went to stay at a hotel. Now, April 19th of 2012, they went back to their family doctor. Now, I'm going to screw this name up, but I think it's Jeffrey Onowaku. <laughs> <laughs> she told she told them what had happened and... Asked if there was some way he could help. Now, the doctor said in 20 years, he had never heard anything like this, and he was kind of scared when he walked into the room. So he walked in. He got all the details. And then in his notes, he wrote that she was delusional, that there she had delusions of ghosts in the home, hallucinating, history of ghosts at the house, and delusional again. He obviously didn't think much of what she was telling him. Apparently not. Glad this was her family doctor. Now, what happened next is basically the weirdest part. This is where everything takes a twist, okay? Now, this was all detailed in a DCS report. And those of you who don't know, DCS is Department of Children's Services. So I'm not sure what everything is around the world, but basically it's the services that are meant to make sure the kids aren't abused and what have yeah. you. So everybody's got them. Uh, some places it's called Crimes Against Children. Some people it's called uh, Child Protective Services. Yeah, CPS, yeah. Yeah, so everything's got a different name. But it, what happened, all this that I'm getting ready to tell you is all detailed in, in a DCS report that a family case manager's uh, interview where they had with medical examiners, okay? So Rosa Campbell, keep in mind that's the grandma of the kids and, and uh, Miss Amon's mom, said that the two boys cursed out the doctor in demonic voices and, and they were like raging at him, okay? So they were they were 
all into it and, and hateful and screaming. Medical staff said that the youngest boy was lifted up and thrown into a wall with nobody touching him, mm. according to the DCS report. So this is actually documented by the worker. The boys both passed out, and they wouldn't come to, so they called 911. Seven or eight police officers and multiple ambulances showed up. The police and the emergency personnel took the boys to Methodist Hospital in Gary, Indiana. Amons asked if she could anoint her sons with olive oil, and she said that some of the personnel actually laughed at her, which obviously they don't have a clue why she's wanting to do that. Uh, the, both of the boys eventually woke up. The oldest boy was acting normal, but the youngest boy flopped around, kind of gyrated, and it took five grown men to hold him down. Now, somebody at the hospital called DCS and asked them if they could uh, investigate Amons because they said that she thought she had a mental illness and they thought that the kids basically were neglected and being abused. So they came in. DCS family care manager Valerie Washington was asked to handle the, the case. She came in, started to investigate, and this is exactly what she told police, and this is listed in the police report. She said hospital personnel examined the children and found her to be found them to be healthy, free of marks and bruises. Miss Amons was examined by a psychiatrist and found to be of sound mind. So there was nothing wrong yeah. with any of them, according to this. Now, Washington interviewed the family at the hospital, okay? So she hadn't been to the house. It was, all this was taking place at the hospital. She said while she talked to the youngest boy, he started growling with his teeth showing and his eyes rolled back in his head. He locked his hands around his older brother's throat and refused to let go until an adult could pry his hands off of him. Wow. Later that night, Washington and, and a registered nurse by the name of Willie Lee Walker, uh, they brought the two boys into a little exam room separately, and they wanted to interview, and, and Rosa Campbell, the grandma, came along too. Mm -hmm. The youngest started staring into his brother's eyes and started that growl shit again. <laughs> he says, it's time to die. I will kill you. In a demon voice. Oh, that's really nice. Well, yeah, I said a demon voice, but what they actually said, it was an unnatural, very deep, unnatural voice. So at this time, the older brother just started headbutting Rosa Campbell in the stomach. Now, Campbell grabbed the hands of the, of the older boy that was headbutting her, and she started praying with him. Now, what happened next just really screwed everybody up that was there to see. What? Because I'm getting to it. Hold on, baby bird. I'll feed you. <laughs> <laughs> but this is according to Washington's official report, and it was corroborated by the nurse. I think it says corroborated. I started throwing an Italian restaurant in there. <laughs> you hungry, honey? <laughs> but according to the nurse, the nine-year-old got a weird grin on his face. He then walked backwards up a wall to the ceiling. He then flipped over Campbell, landing on his feet, and never let go of her hand the whole time this happened. Is that how Michael Jackson learned how to do the moonwalk? I was going to say, being from Gary, Indiana, it probably wouldn't surprise me. They were probably just moonwalking. <laughs> well, that's crazy. So the nurse said that he walked up the wall, flipped, and then just stood there. And he said there's no way that he could have done that. 
Now, police ask the obvious question. Did he run up the wall like a, an acrobat or an acrobatic trick? Yeah. And they said, no, um, he glided backwards. Oh, like so he, now he's just showing off. Now he, yeah. So he like glided all the way back to the wall, glided up the wall, glided to the ceiling, and then flipped over. They said it was at like a very slow pace. Oh, man, I'd like to see that, though. <laughs> I bet a lot of people would. So Washington and Walker, they both ran out of the room. That was the nurse. And uh, they told a doctor what happened. And, of course, he wanted to see the boy do it again. Like, I probably would have wanted to see him do it, too. Oh, definitely. So he wanted to see him do it again. And the boy didn't remember anything at all and said that he couldn't do it again. Hmm. So, you know, now the police report. Now, we had had cell phones back in the day. Well, this was two years ago, babe. Oh. No, three, this, was. This, was two, this was 2011. I think they had cell phones. <laughs> Why did anybody tape that stuff? <laughs> God love you. Bless your little heart. So the, according to the police report, they quoted Washington saying that she believed in, an evil influence could be affecting the family. You think? <laughs> so Amons spent the night with the youngest son because he stayed in the hospital. And the daughter and the older son went to spend the night with some relatives. Now, the next day was the youngest son, who was seven. It was his birthday. He was turning eight. Now, they asked for the other two kids to come back up, so they just assumed that they wanted to talk to him more about what yeah. happened the day before. They come back up. They celebrated his birthday. Uh, and then Miss Amons was shocked to find out that the children were not going to be going home. That, yeah, the DCS took emergency step taking custody without doing a court order. So they oh. took custody of the three kids. Well, they're probably glad. Now, all of the children were experiencing the spiritual and emotional distress, distress, and that was according to the DCS form, and that's why they applied for the custody, for the well-being of the children. I just can't imagine as a kid having to experience that. I mean, you're a kid. Right. You can't even rationalize what the heck, you know? Could be worse. Could be growing up in a rock or something. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> oh, Lord, yes. So April 20th, 2012, way before cell phones, um, <laughs> <laughs> Father Michael, I think it's uh, Magino, he got a call from the hospital chaplain, which he said was the weirdest call that he'd ever gotten because he had been a priest at St. Stephen Martyr Parish in Merrillville, which is also right outside of Gary. Mm -hmm. Merrillville, Hammond, and Gary are all kind of little neighboring cities right there. Um but he got a call saying that, hey, we've got a kid up here that I think needs an exorcism. Can you come do this? Well, obviously, they just can't come do exorcisms. I mean, there's procedures and steps that need to be taken. Um, but in 10 years of being at that church, he said he had never heard anything like that. Mm -hmm. So he agreed to meet with the family after Sunday Mass, which was a couple of days later. Now, the first step was to rule out any kind of natural causes, obviously. So he visited the Amon, uh, Miss Amon and Campbell, because, of course, they don't have the kids now. He visited both of them April 22nd of 2012. And about two hours into their um, detailing him of everything that's going on, Rosa Campbell pointed out that there was a flickering light in the bathroom. Now, he would walk towards the bathroom. As he'd walk in, the light would quit flickering. Oh. He'd walk out, it would start flickering again, he'd come back in, and he even kind of made a joke that it must be scared of me. Mm -hmm. And um, so they go back to their talking about what's going on. Campbell then pointed out that the Venetian blinds they had were swinging, 
Like these were the long ones, you know, like on oh, a patio door. Like ours, not the, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. they're the long ones, like on a patio door. Yeah, and they started swinging, but there was no wind or anything in the house. So she pointed that out to him, and maybe he, there was a heat vent. Well, I, that's something that actually he went to see, but there was no furnace on or oh, off nothing. The yeah, he checked to see whether if there was a furnace or oh, an air conditioner that's or something. So weird. On. Yeah. So that was one of the things he checked. And what he noticed is when he went over there that there was wet footprints throughout the living room, but they weren't like coming from a door or anything. I mean, it's just like in the middle of the room was a wet footprint. Like where the hell did this come from? Hmm. So he saw the wet footprints itself. He also noticed that on the blinds, there was like an oil on them, which didn't really seem so out of, out of whack because they were putting oil on the windows and stuff like that. Why do they use olive oil? I don't know, and I believe that's oil, not oil. We want most of our listeners to understand what the hell we're saying. Oil, oil, olive oil? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, when you think of... Does it matter? I mean, I guess. I mean, I don't know if it's got to be extra virgin or... (laughs) Stop. (laughs) I just don't think I've ever heard them use olive oil. Olive what? Oil. Sorry. (laughs) So, at this point in time, Eamon said that she had a headache... Uh, she said that she then she said she was freezing. She went and got a blanket out of the out of the uh, the bedroom to cover up. Then all of a sudden she was she was burning up and threw the blanket off. So he went and placed a crucifix on her head and she started convulsing. Now just to play nice, he put a crucifix on her mom's head and nothing happened. But remember, she's protected. Oh my god, she's gosh. got a guardian angel. She must speak the truth. Now they're four hours into this this whole conversation, and. He said he was convinced that the family was tormented by demons. He also thought there were some ghosts in the house. So he did like a blessing of the house, and then he left. Now, he told Amons that it really wasn't safe to be there. Uh, she should probably move out. So she moved in with her brother, Mrs. Campbell's other son. And less than a week later, she had to come back uh, to the house because uh, Miss Washington from the um, Department of Children's Services um, wanted to inspect the house. So Washington came in. She had a Lake County police officer with her so they could check stuff out. Now, two other police officers, one from Gary and one from Hammond, which is another neighboring city, asked to join just out of professional curiosity. So they mm-hmm. really didn't have any jurisdiction, but they'd kind of heard yeah. what was going on, and they were curious. So Amons refused to go into the house, but Rosa Campbell, her mom, said she'd go in with the group. Now, the main floor had three bedrooms, a living room. It had a small open kitchen, hardwood floors, and, of course, the, the door in the kitchen that led to the basement, and the basement had concrete floors. Directly underneath the stairs was a dirt floor, and the concrete was all jagged around it like somebody had busted it up. Um, the altar that, that Miss Amons created was still down there. It was all intact. And there was a ring of salt that she had poured all the way around mm-hmm. the walls because mm-hmm. salt is supposed to keep out Demons. demons. Now, Campbell told the officers that the demon's activity seemed to come from the basement beneath the stairs. Oddly enough, that's where they've got that, you know, the broken concrete at. Uh-huh. Now, the, Captain Austin from the Gary Police Department, now, Captain Austin, keep in mind, he had been a uh, police captain for like, I think it was like 35 years. Yeah. Um, so he was in there, and he said he believed in ghosts and the supernatural, but he didn't believe in demons. But he said that changed after his visit oh, yeah. to so the house. He experienced it, huh? Oh, absolutely. So during the interview 
one of the audio recorders that they were using started to malfunction and the batteries went completely dead, even though they had just put brand new batteries in it. Man. But another one of the officers there, they were recording it. And he said during the playback later on, you could hear a voice whisper, hey. And this is according to police records. This is actually all, not just somebody doing an interview. This is actually on police records. Now, the same officer took a bunch of pictures and in a photo of the basement stairs, uh, there was a cloudy white image in the right-hand top right-hand corner. When you enlarged it, it resembled somebody's face. Also, when they enlarged it, they noticed that there was a second image that was green, but it looked a lot like a female. Huh. I don't know how many green females. Well, I was just think, why, why, why? I mean, Captain Kirk screwed that green bitch that time on. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you men will do anything. I know. Captain Austin said... That the pics he took with his with his iPhone had strange silhouettes in them, and the radio. This is kind of cool. The radio in his police car malfunctioned all the way back to the police station. Wow. He then, I think, got into his personal car, and he got home, and the garage door wouldn't open. Even though there was power to everything, his garage door now wouldn't open where he never had any problems with it. And in his personal car, which was an Infinity, he said the seat, the power seat, would go forward and go back and forward and back on its own. So all this happened right after visiting the house. Tag on it. Now, April 1st. So in April 2012, um, DCS petitioned Lake Juvenile Court for temporary wardship of the three kids. And they were granted to them. Well, I, you know what? I'm sorry, but if I'm them kids, I'd be glad to be the hell up out of there. DCS found that Amons neglected her children's education by not having them in school on a regular basis. Uh, and that also happened in 2009. So this wasn't the only time. So 2011 is when all this started. But 2009, she didn't have them in school either. Now, Amons, obviously, she blamed the spirits. She said that they would make her kids sick sometimes so they couldn't go to school. And that sometimes it would keep them up all night. Therefore, they couldn't go to school. But well, that Maybe she just didn't want to be there by herself. Well, but that doesn't explain what happened in 2009. So anyway, DCS placed um, the daughter and the oldest son in St. Joseph's uh, home. And then the youngest son they put in Christian Haven um, for some psychiatric evaluation to be done. Um, so clinical psychologist Stacy Wright said that this about the youngest son. She said that the only time he ever acted possessed was when he was challenged, redirected, or asked questions that he didn't want to answer. He seemed logical unless he was talking about demons, uh, and it was only then that it was bizarre or illogical or fragmented. Uh, so basically she said uh, she didn't believe that he suffered from any kind of uh, psychosis, and her exact words were, this appears to be an unfortunate and sad case of a child who has been um, undoed into a delusional situation perpetrated by his mother and potentially um, reiterated by other relatives. Hmm. That's sad. Now, Joel Schwartz, he basically came to the same conclusion about the other two kids. There's, this is there always appears to be a need to assess the extent to where Amon's daughter may have been unduly influenced by her mother um, to where she felt like that she was exposed to paranormal activities. And the daughter said that she saw shadow figures uh, and that she would see stuff move. She said um, that she would hear doors slam 
and the same thing with the son. So they both all kind of said the same thing. Yeah. But they felt like these psychiatrists and psychologists felt like that it was because the mom had mentioned it, that it was kind of planted in their head. Now, Latoya was actually um, examined several times, and they said she wasn't experiencing any symptoms of psychosis or thought disorder. So none of these psychologists are coming up with anything to show that these people have any kind of mental problems whatsoever. And well, I mean, that's, I mean, even, I mean, even them saying that into the kids, I mean, that's probably messing with their minds anyway. Well, and then, they're probably like, what the heck is wrong with me then? And if you think that's the case, it's even going to get worse because the DCS then set goals for the family in order for Latoya to get her kids back. And some of those goals were not discussing demons or being possessed. They weren't allowed to talk about it mm-hmm. as a family. Um, then they had to, they had to take responsibility for their own actions, and then they had to have therapy uh, for the past problems that they had. So basically, they're coming in and saying uh, this whole demon stuff is bullshit, and uh, you're just making all this shit up, and I don't want you to talk about it anymore. Okay, but then and why do gonna, they have to have therapy then? So that's right. So the, well, the, the therapy was so if there were issues that wasn't really going on, but they had planted them in their own minds. It was, mm-hmm. to, I guess, to get rid of the problems but i mean i just think it's absolutely crazy that they're basically going to tell these people well we're right and you're wrong yeah so then the agency said that in order for uh, her to be able to get the kids back that she needed to find an alternative way to discipline the kids that wasn't related to religion or demon possession that's kind of odd so i don't know i never really saw anything that really led this it's almost like they were saying that she was punishing them by some kind of religious means or with the, using the demonic possession as a punishment. I don't know what they meant by that. I don't know if they meant that she was making the kids do some kind of prayers or scriptures out of the Bible or something mm-hmm. when they misbehaved or if she was, you know, telling them, you know, the, the devil's going to get you if you do this. And I'm not sure what they meant by that, but apparently something came out to where that's what they told her she had to do. Uh, they said that, you know, she could work on, she was going to have, uh, what do you call them, supervised visitations. Yeah. But that she could work on getting the kids back and work on this during the supervised visitations. In order to get the kids back, she also had to find a job and appropriate housing due to paranormal activity. Now, that's what the, that's what it actually said in the listing, find new housing due to paranormal activity. So in one sense, they're saying you got to find a new place because there's paranormal activity in this house. But at the same time, they're saying, we're going to say none of this stuff ever happened, and okay, you're wrong for... that's so ridiculous. Because, like, again, how messed up is that for the kids? Well, I mean, it's very hypocritical. Well, it is very hypocritical. They need to butt out. So while Amon's worked on this, this is what I find peculiar about this. So while she's working on all this, police and, and DCS continue to investigate the strange happenings at the house. So, I mean, you basically already made your conclusion that they're full of shit... But now you're still going out and investigating the house, and and they're not even living there right now. Yeah. What is the point? Right. So in May 10th of 2012, Amons, Campbell, Captain Austin from the Gary Police Department, and two other police officers from the original visit came after work hours. Now, they were joined by Father Magino, Magino, I'm sorry, and two Lake County officers with a police dog and a DCS family caseworker, and I do not know how to pronounce his name. 
I'm just not going to lie. Her name was Samantha, but it's I, 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 C. Yuck. And I find it hard to believe that's what it is, but that's what it looks like. (laughs) So from this point on, she will be known as Samantha. Yes, seriously. Now, Samantha was there because Washington, who had started this investigation for uh, DCS, uh, she did not want to go back to the house again. I don't blame her. So she obviously had some some, uh, ill feelings towards the house, so Uh to speak. So the officer, the one officer with the police dog, he took it all the way around the outside of the house while everybody else went to the basement. Now, Samantha touched this strange liquid. She said it felt slippery, but it was sticky between her fingers, which wouldn't be olive oil or oil. (laughs) Um, Magino told the police that he wanted to check under the stairs because he didn't know about this when he was there before. Because remember, he was there Mm -hmm. just a couple of days before the police came out and found found that. He wanted to check under the stairs to see if there was like a pentagram or some personal objects that might be cursed or um, somebody might have buried there or a person might be buried there. Because if there had been a death in the house and somebody buried, that might have been the problem. That would explain a little bit, yeah. So police dug a four-foot by three-foot hole. They found a pink press-on nail. This would have been a good opportunity for Lee's press-on-nails to get an endorsement deal. No doubt. Wow, that's weird. They found a press-on-nail, a white pair of panties, a political shirt pin, a lid for a small cooking pan, socks with the bottoms cut off right below the ankles, candy wrappers, and a weight that you would use for like a drapery cord or something that would to pull the drapes back and stuff. That's what was down there. That's all that they found. Well, that is like random crap. I know. It sounds like a party to me. Well, it sounds something weird. <laughs> but Samantha said that when she was down there, she didn't feel good. She went upstairs, and later while she was standing in the living room, her pinky finger started tingling, and it started, like, whitening. Yeah. So it was almost like the circulation was being cut off, and then she said it felt like it was broken. But less than 10 minutes later, she couldn't breathe and started having a panic attack or a panic attack. And then uh, she walked outside. When father um, questioned Amons inside the house, she started complaining of a headache and shoulder pain. And then she went outside. Then Captain Austin left it dark because after over 30 years on the force being shot at, being involved in rape cases, murder cases and all that, he said flat up, I'm not going to be in that house after dark. He ain't trying to be possessed yeah. in his retirement. That's right. <laughs> so the other police went ahead and walked through the house on the main floor. They started noticing that the oil was dripping from the blinds, but they couldn't tell where it was coming from. So they wanted to make sure, obviously, that uh, Amons or Campbell hadn't put oil on there while they were downstairs or something. So they, they, they cleaned it all off. They blocked off the room. And they didn't let anybody in for 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. So they were at the doors, make sure nobody came in. They went right back in there, and the oil had reappeared uh-huh. on every one of the things. So Mangino then told the police that the oil was a manifestation of paranormal or demonic presence. I wonder if he did that, like, uh, if he tasted it. Nope, that's not olive oil. That's that's demon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like people do transmission fluid oh, and stuff. Oh, Yeah. So he wrote in a detailed report, and he asked uh, Bishop Dale, I think it's Machex, permission for an exorcism on the Amons. Now, Machek had never authorized an exorcism in 24 years as being the bishop um, of the Diocese of Gary. 
And he initially denied this request. He told he told him to contact some other priests that had been doing some uh, uh, my, what he called minor exorcisms. They don't need church approval to do that. Mm-hmm. So you can do a minor exorcism without church approval. This is what I think is funny. And so 21st century, he wanted him to contact these other priests so he could actually get the ritual from them. And when he contacted the priest, they told him, just get it off the Internet. <laughs> That's what they said. Stop. Basically, Google it. <laughs> oh I might do that when we get off here. Oh so gosh. he did what you, what you call an intense blessing on the home uh, to expel bad spirits. Now, the same day, he did do a minor exorcism of Amon's. It was a ritual that just basically consisted of prayers, uh, statements, and appeals to cast demons out. Now, two police officers and Samantha were at that ritual. Now, Samantha said she left believing that something was going on. She wouldn't go as far as to say it was demons, but she said she got chills for the whole two hours that the ritual went on. It just felt like somebody was in the room breathing down your neck. Samantha also said that she had an amazing string of bad medical problems after visiting the house. In a 30-day period, she got third-degree burns from a motorcycle. She broke her ankle running in flip-flops, I might add. I tell you not to do that. Here's proof. (laughs) Well, I've never seen you run anywhere. I was going to say, where, where are you getting that from? <laughs> she broke three ribs in a jet ski accident, and she broke her hand hitting a table all in 30 days. Dang. It sounds to me like the bitch is just clumsy. No, yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like that's true. So, I mean, how do you go try to blame something on a house when you, one of them happened to ride a jet ski, one was on a motorcycle, you hit a table with your hand, you're running in flip flops. You're asking for trouble. Oh, well, yeah. First you, of all, you should never wear flip flops to begin with. Yeah, those things are dangerous. I love him, though. So then, after the minor ritual, uh, he asked Amos to look up the names of the demons. More Googling. Look up the names of the demons that are tormenting her, because every demon has a name, and they also have personalities. And by looking up the personalities, she could see basically whatever was happening to her, she can see what demons' personalities fit the problem, and then he could use that during a real exorcism. Hmm. So, Amon's and a friend, she tried to look up the demons online, more Googling, based on the problems that they were having, but she said she would feel sick, she would feel lightheaded, and then the computer kept shutting down. That's probably just Bill Gates. Yeah. (laughs) You think that's what it is? Yeah, I know. Anytime I deal with Windows. (laughs) She said she found some of the names that fit, actually, though, one of which was Beelzebub. He's Lord of the Flies. Beelzebub. So, Lord of the Flies. Is that where the flies come in? I guess. I mean, because she was having a problem with the flies in the very beginning. Yeah. So, that would be that would make sense. And then she said there was they found some demons that actually tortured children, tor- torture and hurt children. So, she wrote all these names down. Now, after the minor, the bishop actually gave Father Mangino uh, permission to do a full-blown exorcism. And he's, it's, the funny thing is, you know what the full-blown exorcism is? It's the exact same thing as the minor exorcism, but it's got the backing of the Catholic Church, so therefore it's more powerful. So you can come in and do the exact same thing, mm. but it's more powerful. No, I'm not. I don't know if I buy that or not. So he performed three major exorcisms on Amon's, two of them in English, one of them in Latin, and one in Pig Latin, just to be sure. <laughs> I made that up. He didn't do <laughs> I was like, what's the difference between Latin and Big Latin? <laughs> so, <laughs> the last one he did it was in June 2012. And uh, it was in his church, in, in you know, the Merrillville Church. 
it's funny because during each each one of these things, each one of these ex- exorcisms, he would praise God and then command demons to leave. So that's basically was the whole exorcism. He pressed a crucifix on her head as he spoke, and this is what he said. So if you know anybody possessed, if you just want to try this out, yeah, oh. I'm giving you the tools right here. Oh, okay. You might good want to get some holy water or good something. Good to know. And if you don't do a really good job and they're possessed, and then you don't pay it, you could get repossessed. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so anyway, he pressed the crucifix to her head, <laughs> and he spoke. I cast you out, unclean spirit, along with every satanic power of the enemy, every specter from hell, and all of your companions, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That seems awful small to be, because they seem like in The Exorcist, they read a whole lot more shit than that. I mean, I didn't hear any of the power of Christ compels you or none of that. So I don't know how true no, it is. It's just a short version. Maybe kept, you can get away with that these so days. He kept getting louder and more forceful. Until the demon weakened. Now, he said you can tell the demon is weakening or how strong it is by how much um, convulsing that the person does. Mm -hmm. Now, she prayed along with him until she said it became too painful. And she said, this is funny. You know, at the time, just so you'll know, there was two police officers that were standing out front. They were the two two of the ones that were helping with the other stuff. Uh, But they just wanted to be there in case she needed to be restrained. But Eamon said that it felt like something was inside of her trying to hold on and inflict pain. She said it was different than natural pain, but it was just as painful as childbirth. Hmm. Now, eventually, she fell asleep. That was the demon's way of lessening the ritual. So I guess he figures she's asleep. It'll just kind of tone it down a little bit. Okay, now the third and the final exorcism took place at the end of June 2012. And he did this one actually in Latin. Now, by now, Miss Amos was living in Indianapolis, but she had to drive in for the exorcisms and for the court dates because she still had her kids in, in the uh, DCS. So she still had to come back for court dates for that. Mm-hmm. Now, Father said that the whole time he was doing this, she convulsed while he was condemning the spirit to leave, uh, but not during the prayers. She then fell asleep, and then he said the words of Thanksgiving, which I don't know what the words of Thanksgiving. What is that? I don't know. Cornucopia? Turkey. Pumpkin pie? Maybe. Dressing. Could be. But I, those are the only words I know of Thanksgiving. So that's no. the first time I'd ever heard words of Thanksgiving. Now, oddly enough, that was the last time that they would see each other. Father okay. Father Mangione, or whatever his name is. I'm trying to put your dad, Father Man. How about you just making some of it? Father. Father. Uh, but it's the last time that Miss Amons and the father would see each other. And, but she said now that she can live without fear. And in November 2012, because I know everybody's curious, six months after they took her kids, she got her kids back. Good. Uh, let's talk about the, you know, and I know it sounds like an abrupt way to end this, but there really isn't anything else to cover. I mean, at that point, she got the kids back. The kids were happy. They couldn't, they were so excited to see her. Uh, there's no talks of demons. There's no talks of anything. They don't have any problems at all in their life right now that Great. involve anything to do with that. But let's talk about the house for a few minutes. Now, originally, you know, the landlord, the guy named by the name of Charles Reed, who owned the house and was the landlord, he said that basically she was full of shit. He said there had never been any problems in that house with anybody who lived before it, and he's got tenants in there afterwards, and there were no problems with them. As a matter of fact, he had to call the uh, 
the Gary Police Department asked them to quit driving by because they were scaring the current tenants that lived there. So, well, maybe that the demons don't like the current tenants. Well, the, well, maybe not. Who knows? Yeah, maybe it's not his cup of tea. And of course, um, we we touched on this a little bit earlier. Zach Baggins from uh, Ghost Adventurers, he actually bought the house, and he said that there was so much evil in that house that he had it torn down because he felt like that there should never be another family lived there. Well, good for him. Now there's nobody really knows exactly what his reasoning for tearing the house down. He's got a documentary coming out supposedly the end of this year. That's supposed to have all the answers of everything he experienced at that house. So I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. Now I called Zach uh, yesterday because I wanted to find out a little more about the documentary and he was really adamant about I never call his phone again. So I basically got nothing for you on that. Did you really? No. <laughs> no. Why are you? I'm, I'm, so not gonna get, I'm not going to get Zach's phone number. I don't know. I don't know how you operate. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's uh, that's the story we got on the Gary Demon House. I mean, can you imagine a situation? I mean, think about this story. You've got a woman talking about she's possessed. Three kids are, are saying we got kids being thrown against the walls by and and all kinds of witnesses from child protective services. They're wasting olive oil. Police officers are all seeing this. Kids being thrown around walls with nobody there to touch them. They're seeing kids walk up walls backwards. They're hearing demonic voices. You've got police officers scared to go in this house. You've got Child Protective Service um, uh, people that, that won't come back to the house. And then the ones who did come, they're scared. I mean, I know not everybody believes in the kind of stuff we're talking about. And I'm not saying everything we talk about is 100% believable. I've said that before. But how can you not believe something happened at this house with that kind of documentation? I think they're all a bunch of weenies, is what I think. Yeah, I'd like to see you walking out. You don't, you don't walk downstairs in our own house when it's dark without flipping lights on. Oh, I do so. Whatever. Anyways, what about when we go to a haunted houses and they're fake, and you and we go to them at Halloween? Yeah, that you, does scare me. You about ripped my all, arm off only because there's just sick people out in the world, and they may take that crap literally what they're doing. So that scares you, but a demon in the house wouldn't scare you. Hmm. What a, what a liar. Anyways, I wanted to um, basically say that I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm kind of torn on this one because I can see all the things that happened that all the people saw that make you think there's got to be something. But then at the same time, you know, they did an exorcism on her. But he didn't do an exorcism on the kids, so why are they okay now? Mm-hmm. And if them, if, if the clairvoyance said there were so many demons in that house, they put a number. Like I said, I don't know how you can count, but you know, why were the you know? And I understand these things can attach themselves to you, but it just it just something doesn't seem right about the fact that the kids basically had no problems. And they didn't have an exorcism done to them. I don't understand how having having it on the mom would fix all the problems. Now, Why can't you just let it be a happy ending and quit running it? Well, because there needs to be answers, damn it. There is answers. Mom was the mean one. 
and she took all the demons away from her kids, and they didn't need an exorcism because that's what moms do. Now you're just babbling. <laughs> now, I will say this. Um, part of the studies that I did, and, and I would advise anybody to go listen to this, there is an episode of Mysterious Radio with K-Town, my girl over there that we always talk about. She actually did an interview. It's about an hour-long interview with uh, the priest, um, Mangino. And I'm, like I said, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. I should have went and listened to her show again. But she actually, he actually does a long interview where he talks in detail of a lot of these different, you know, on this subject. And like I said, he was there for all this. Uh, I would highly advise anybody to go back and listen to that if you're if you're interested in more than this story, because I thought that uh, he did a heck of a job on explaining some of the stuff that I didn't even get to in the story. So go and back. He and he knows how to pronounce his name. I'm sure he probably does. <laughs> but um, go go listen to her, to her the episode on there. You'll find it really easy. It it says uh, exorcism of the demon house on on there, so you'll be able to find it. And also, just as a coincidence, that is the same episode that Tracy and I were on. She allowed us to come on and do oh, a little yeah, intro for the show, and she gave us a little praise, so you get a little doubleheader. We actually started off that show. Yay. So that's what we got for the uh, the Demon House of Gary, Indiana. I hope you enjoyed that one, because I know we certainly did. And we're going to talk about a couple of quick things, and then we're going to bring on Steve Asher uh, and talk about his book, The Hauntings of the Kentucky State Penitentiary. But we're talking about doing a um, Patreon page. Which, uh, excuse me, I burped a little bit. <laughs> actually, I actually threw up a little bit in my mouth, but I'm a gamer, so I'm going to work through it. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> so we're talking about doing a Patreon page. And for those of you who don't know what a Patreon page is, it's basically, it's a page where you can show your support by pledging a monthly donation. It takes it out every single month. But we're going to have something set up for like a dollar. Stop laughing. This, is, this isn't funny. This is serious. I'm trying to be serious with vomit in my mouth. But okay. what we're going to do is, is typically how these things work is, is people agree to give a monthly donation. It comes out by PayPal or credit card. And then what we agree to do is give you something extra for the money. And we'll probably have three tiers is what I'm thinking. Uh, besides tears the, like crying. Yeah. <laughs> but we're going to have three tiers. It's probably going to be a dollar a month, and you'll get something basic like a shout-out, and then your name may get entered every month for a T-shirt. We're going to give away a T-shirt every month. So if you are if you donate a dollar a month, your name at least gets put in for a T-shirt drawing. If you do the $3 tier, we're actually going to do an episode every month of listener stories. So it's just going to be, uh, we're going to get in contact with some listeners and they'll tell their story live and we'll read a couple. And then uh, we'll probably just tell some fun stories uh, that happened, you know, maybe some paranormal stories or something out there, but it's going to be basically a listener show your chance to tell your stories. And if you donate $3 a month, you'll get in for the t-shirt drawing and you get that episode free every month. And if you do the $5 tier, we're going to do a separate show which is going to be a lot like our regular show, except it's going to be more on the true crime uh, type situation. Like we did the Lizzie Borden show, which I consider true crime, H.H. Holmes. And then um, what was the other one we did that was like that? Uh, Alistair Crowley, kind of. Uh, I was but, say he had to be in there somewhere. Well, he's not he really as much of a true crime. He still fits more the paranormal. The Dietzloff Pass uh, about the hikers. 
Uh, that kind of fits in there. But what we're going to do is we're probably going to stop doing those type of shows and just do strictly paranormal shows like you heard tonight. And then we'll do an extra show every month that's going to be on stuff like Jack the Ripper. Uh, I'd like to do one on some of the cults out there, like the Jim Jones. Uh, your older people remember that, the Guyana deal. I'd like to be able to do one on that. And then maybe Don't maybe the, the Kool Aid. Right. That's where that came from. And maybe the Heaven's Gate or something like that. But do one show of those a month, it'd probably be a forty five minute show. And if you donate the five dollars a month, you'll get that show. Plus you'll get the uh, listener show. And you'll also get the uh in, entered for the donation of or uh entered for the T shirt drawing every month. So, and if you're lucky you'll get another episode of Jerry Pukin in his mouth. Well let's don't make promises we can't keep. Well, that was pretty impressive. <laughs> the look went with it, though. It's, you kind of got to see it yeah, but I didn't to even, really appreciate it. But I didn't it. even stop. See, because that's the way I am. Yeah. I care about these people. Yeah. Even though I could have just pressed the record button and edited it out. <laughs> but that's what we got planned for you guys. Uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll let you know as it gets closer. It's probably going to be two, three, four weeks away. And then uh, for any of you guys that have already donated, we're not going to leave you out. We'll throw you in for uh, the first episode to be on us. Uh, just for what you've already done, and we'll enter you all for a T-shirt drawing, too. Yeah. So you're not going to miss out if you've already donated. I want some ice cream. Okay. My God, you're just so random. I know. I just feel like I want some ice cream. I'll take you out for ice cream in a minute. Yay. We'll go to Culver's because I like their ice cream. Yay. I've been craving it. Anyways, hold on real tight, and I'm going to bring on uh, Steve Asher. And uh, this is going to be fun because this is not too far from where we live, and uh, the book is fascinating. And we've already had uh, Julie Gilder, uh, who actually has donated to the show. Thank you for that, Julie. She actually has already went on Amazon and purchased this book just because I put out the little flyer with it on there. Perfect. So, awesome. So, we will uh, see you guys shortly, and we're going to talk to Steve Asher. All right, everybody, welcome back to Hilly Horror Stories, and I've got a special guest on the uh, phone. I've got joining me Steve E. Asher, and Steve has got a book out called uh, Hauntings of the Kentucky State Penitentiary. Uh, sent me a complimentary copy. It is a very quick read. It's one of those that once you pick it up, you're not going to be able to put it down. Uh, awesome stories. And Steve, thank you for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Hey, uh, I appreciate it as well, and and, and uh, I look forward to getting in uh, in depth a little bit about some of this writing and some of the questions you got. Awesome, you know it's funny how we came uh, uh, to talk to each other. You got a we've got a mutual friend, a listener to the show, Kevin Cummings, that said, "Hey, uh, have you ever heard of this book?" And at the time, I hadn't, and uh, he put me in contact with you. And one thing led to another, but I'm glad he did because uh, Kevin's a great listener, and and not only did does. He do us uh, uh, a lot of justice by listening to the show, but now he's actually turned us on to somebody that I think is going to be a great addition to our show that that our listeners are really going to enjoy. Uh, so thanks to Kevin out there for putting us together. Oh, for sure. Like I said, uh, my wife Cheyenne actually knew him years before me and her met. Uh, she used to be an EMT years ago, and uh, he had trained her, and he was actually a, in our wedding party. So, oh, really cool. So, yeah. Yeah, so we've known, known old Kevin for quite a while. So let's talk a little bit about how all this thing gets started. So originally, um, you were a guard out at uh, at the Kentucky State Penitentiary. Am I correct on that? Yes, sir. Yeah, like I said, uh, uh, between there and an- another place, uh, the Western Kentucky Correctional Complex, which is like a m- minimum to medium security facility, uh, I had a little bit over 10 years. So uh, I uh, once, once I went to the penitentiary, 
it was sort of a really eye-opening experience because, you know, for the most part, we were dealing with bad check guys and low-level drug charges and stuff like that at the at the minimum place. And but you know, once you once you go through, well, let me say about seven series of gates and triple rows of bob wire and gun tires everywhere and it was like sheesh okay <laughs> yeah it's a so, little little more intense <laughs> this is a real prison okay you know and uh and yeah my my education started quickly it was it was still during the time where it's kind of like hey here's your radio you know here's some yard keys walk the yard look out for stuff I and mean, it was very like old beat copish you know it was just this like here it is. I mean, at the original, the, the first place, at the minimal, I was actually trained by a, a guy named Teddy Davenport. Uh, he was an inmate. He was in there for like a vehicular, like vehicular manslaughter or something. I think he was drinking and he accidentally hurt some, killed some people. But, and uh, he was a local guy. And I went into my captain and said, "Hey, sir, you know, you know, green as a sapling, right? You know, hey, good to meet you, sir." And blah blah blah. And I'm, I plan to do a good job and whatever. And he said, "Okay." I said, "Well, who's my superior officer?" And he said, "Oh, no, let me get him." And he said, "Teddy." So. Here's comes this guy with a mop. And I'm looking behind him like, where's the guy? He says, Teddy, here, take him around, show him all those keys, show him what they do. You know, he knew every one of them. I mean, he, you know, he, he'd been there for probably, probably 15 years or so. And, uh, I was like, well, okay, well, my first boss is an inmate. Okay, cool. <laughs> That's gotta be some kind of trust level with an inmate to just say, Hey, here you go. Train the guard. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, how do I say it? And I'm going to say it with all the respect I can. Um, People say, "Oh, you're from Kentucky," and the first thing they think is Frankfurt or Lexington or something like that. And I said, "No, see, it's it's like um, there's three different sections. There's you know, east, central, and western, and it, they're just totally different animals, you know. And and here it's much more of a midwestern kind of feel. Uh, a lot of a lot of lakes in this area and stuff. And it's just very, it's got that old that old kind of old school feel to it. And and a lot of times the the ways the prisons were run reflect that." So and it's a lot more like a lot of prisons might have been ran in the 80s or 90s. You know, we're always a good 10 or 15 years behind on most uh, most stuff like that, which again can isn't always a bad thing. But that's just the nature of the nature of the beast with it. I can't help but to listen to that story, and, and in my head, I'm picturing like Andy Griffith with Otis letting himself in and out of the cell. And I know it's not <laughs> nowhere near that level, but in my head, that's kind of what was popping in. Well, yeah, I mean, you now I mean, once you went to the penitentiary. It was different because what you had was it went from so much having a trusted, a little bit more solid guy to having what they call the rat system. Um, I'd heard years ago when I hired in, the rat system is is long dead at KSP. And then you come back from training and says, you know, all that stuff they told you? Yeah, forget all that. Okay, here's where where you really start learning the job. Yes, the rat system is still very much in place. You know, yeah, we watch it to find out what's going on with the inmates. We also used to find out what's going on with the guards. Sometimes they're going to use, you know, they didn't say this, but I know that they would test officers by having somebody walk up and make sort of offhanded, yeah, you know, guys can make a lot of money in here, you know, this type of thing like that to test fellas. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that... It, it was a little bit, a little bit more darker, and that's just the way it had been forever at KSP. Uh, that's what we call Kentucky State Penitentiary, and uh, and it's still that way, and it'll probably be that way till they shut it down. Let me let me ask you this: from the difference between the two uh, correctional facilities that you were in, obviously one was a lot less pressured than the other. How what's the difference between the two as far as? how it beats down on you as a person. I mean, I just listened to one of those specials about the, uh, the whole Stanford experiment and I can't help but to, to just think that being in a, uh, 
a more maximum security situation, it's probably got to dwell on you as a person harder than being in any other situation. Am I right on that? Yeah, no. I mean, you know, I always took it into the mind frame of going, look, um, I looked at it like, okay, I am, I am the sentry at the gate. Okay, instead of keeping it, you know, bad stuff out, I'm keeping bad stuff in. You know, I'm, I'm the guard of the citadels. It was, you know, and trying to keep these fellows in here to because I know just outside of here are homes with children and women and, you know, and I might, it might sound sexist, but it's okay. I'm, I'm an old southerner. It's how it is, but. You know, there's there's families to to, to protect, and I kind of took it on as that. Uh, maybe it's a little high-minded, but that's 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 how I kind of was able to cope with it. Um, at at KSP, yeah, there was definitely um, it, it definitely weighed on you. And, and the thing was, uh, it was about and there definitely was a, the element of conformity for inmates and for officers. You know, it's it, it was all about following the military line of protocol, and that's the thing. I mean, if I could take a guy who's did 20 years inside and then take a guy who was an officer who did 20 – it used to be like to say 25 or 30 years before it went to hazardous duty pay, uh, take him out of the uniform, set him down in front of a you know, a lake with some fishing poles and the way they're talking back and forth and their mannerisms, you would think that they were either both were guards or both were inmates. You couldn't tell the difference uh, because that becomes so ingrained in you and – you know. Even the years of being out of uh, the, that type of work, which I was never a military guy. My, my, my brother and my father were. But um, you know, I'll still catch myself if somebody's saying something to me, especially if I'm like hurried trying to get through something. Saying, no, negative, negative. You need to do this. Hmm. And I, I'm like negative when I'm telling them negative. Um, and it's just one of those quirky things that, that sticks with you. Um, you know, And it takes a long time to wash that out of you. It's like uh, – I don't know if you ever caught crawdads or – Whatever, and you want you know before you could try to eat them or anything, you had to put them in water and let it let them work that mud vein out of them. Yep. Um, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of mud in that place, you know, and it and there's a lot of ways you, you have to carry yourself. Um, it, you definitely have a a job face and a and a home face, you know, and and sadly some guys were never able to differentiate that, and a lot of times those are the fellas that fell off into drug use or whatever, and you know families break up and and all that stuff and you find yourself unable to cope with regular people civvies or whatever all you want to do is talk with other guards and watch cops and go shooting on the weekends and then we start running the bar with this and that one it's just if, if you're not very uh and i don't count myself necessarily as someone who i necessarily say is uh extremely i don't want to say i'm not moral i guess i have a certain certain more morals you know but i don't consider myself holier than now but it's one of those things if, if you don't watch yourself that riptide to get you and, and you'll really you'll really end up in some dark spots you, you mentioned yourself as, as being kind of a gatekeeper in the mentality of, of your job is to keep the bad in but let's tie that into a little bit about the paranormal now obviously there's uh there's some people that have never left um which causes uh, some of the activity in the place and which led to you writing a book on it. Tell me a little bit about some of what you saw or some of what you've heard during the time there that led to you actually writing a book on it. Well, when I hired in there, uh, I think it was right, right around the m probably mid of October 97. And um, my father, who, who's now gone, both, both my parents are gone at this point, but he was still alive. And so we were talking about this and that, and you know, uh, he said, "Son, I, 
I really wish you wouldn't take this job. You know, I'm thinking, well, boy, I don't want to see you get hurt. Or, you know, my dad was kind of like a, a cross between uh, like John Wayne and uh, like like the guy from True Grit, kind of a rough, tough old yeah. type of type of guy. And he he never really got personal with me like that. And then I said, well, you know, I mean, I think I can do the job. He said, well, it's not that. He said, I, I think you, I don't think you got the heart for it. At the time, I was still pretty young, and it kind of was sort of a backhanded compliment, and I didn't quite understand. You know, I did the job and and did it pretty well, I think. And and he's like, well, you know, I'm, I was kind of surprised. You know, it seems, it seems like you're all right for it. And but I think what he was trying to say was, it will change you, and it did change me. Um, you know, it took me years to be able to go to a restaurant and sit with my back to a window. You know, I'm used to sitting in a corner booth so I can watch the activity in the room. You know, that's that's how I ate for years. You know, you, you don't want to have a room full of unwatched inmates rolling behind your back. You know, and uh, but as of the uh, the paranormal stuff, it, yeah, I mean, it, it it happened pretty quickly. And what you got to remember is that when I spoke to one of the old timers, which I was lucky enough to have the 25, 30 year old type of uh, of uh, officers in there training me when I come in, and they said, look, you know. Uh, we were talking about going through with metal detectors and said, you know, we can, and and we found out quite a bit of stuff. And he said, you know, there's probably not 10 feet that there's not either a weapon or there's been a murder on, on this yard, you know, and it's just, he said, if there's not, if there's not something here, I'm, you know, I, I'm either hallucinating and half the people I know are hallucinating because, you know, it's just, it just happens, you know, I mean, and I heard mutterings of stories. And most of the time people would kind of joke it off and go, well, it was probably just a wind or it's probably this and that. Nobody wants to be that guy. Nobody wants to be the quirky ghost guy. Well, I was the one that asked questions about it and said, well, man, you know, I've, I've seen some stuff up in here. I've seen shadows going through the, the showers, and I've, you know, heard stuff climbing, walking down the metal corrugated steps, you know, and there's no one in there, and the wall stands. And and uh, it became a thing of, oh, okay. And then they kind of knew I was not going to make a joke about it. And then, then it got to the point where younger officers would come to me and go, Hey, I hear you know stuff about ghosts. And I said, Well, I mean, I've researched it since I was a kid and studied it best I can, and you know, pretty much self-taught. I mean, I, there's that's one thing that kills me. You'll see folks just go, Well, this guy is a expert or a certified this. How you can't really certify something that's unqualifiable. You know, uh, it's one of those things we can we have good guesses, educated guesses, but it's it's a thing that you're not. It's it's just something we won't know until we're over there, um, but yeah. But it got to the point where then they were coming to me and talking to me about stuff, and and that's when it was like, okay, well maybe it's not an imaginary thing. Maybe it's not me hearing the stories. These kids are coming off right off the off the bus as it was, and then they're seeing this and that. And it was strange when they started seeking me out. So, but yeah, um, you got to remember this place was built in mid eighteen hundreds. You know, on inmate labor. I mean, every every stone, every brick was put there by through inmate labor, and you know, even people died doing that. I mean, there was death from the onset of all this, and you know, there's been count, you know, multiple executions, you know, shooting or not, not shooting. They don't, I, don't, I don't think they ever did firing squad, but hangings, electrocutions. Now they have lethal injection, and. uh and that's not counting all the stabbings, you know, the rapes, the, you know, bludgeonings and stuff that's happened just from inmate to inmate, inmate to officers. It's just, uh, it's just a kill floor. I mean, that's that's really the best way I can describe it. Man, that's uh, 
I mean, you could, there's a prison in itself, even without any of those things, it's, there's just so much, um, you know, frame of mind there. Just everybody just seems so desolate and, and no future and no hope. So you could just imagine that alone would be bad enough. But then you throw in all the, the you know, the murders and then the uh, the bad actions of, of uh, either maybe some bad guards down the road or the, the uh, bad prisoners acting out against the guards and then all the lethal injections and electrocutions. I mean, you could just imagine this is just a prime setup for paranormal activity. The thing that I've discovered is – and uh, the, the buildings, uh, especially the original buildings, were all made of limestone. Uh, there's a lot of quartz involved there. Uh, where you have sort of a – what's something called a karst system, which is through this area, and, and I'm not sure if it's up in your area as well. Uh, it's a lot of waterways, a lot of caves, and most of it's cut through limestone. You know, Limestone has a frequency. Running water – uh, as I understand, produces a certain amount of current and a frequency, and all these things coupled with all the violence and, the, like you said, the desolation, the the, the the being isolated, being hunted, being fearful, and then on the other side, being the hunter, always hungry, needing to kill, needing to rape, needing to this and that. Then you have the officers involved, and, and you got to remember, there was a time when uh, the officers, on average, were not much better than the inmates. And uh, so there was always that game. It was us against them, and there's still a little bit of that in that. Uh, I always try to kind of avoid those type of folks just because it was not where my heart was at. But, yeah, I mean it's it's pretty much just like layering emotions on psychic energy, on history, on more violence, you know, and it's just it's just a heavily condensed negativity in that area and – and it's you know I've been to a lot of places. I've investigated a lot of places uh, across the world. You know I've, I've checked out places in Thailand and you know in, in Asian Asian countries. You know I've checked stuff out in Canada and in that area. But it, it, I'm trying. I, I stammer because I'm trying to word this just right because it's trying to like describe a color to somebody. Um, you know that feeling like you were in school and you have a bully on your back. I mean I'm, I mean a big bully. And it's like there's no one, no one's helping you. There's no help. Just like it's not quite panic, but you're hyper aware that it could pop at any time. Yep. It's almost like sitting there with your face over over a pressure cooker, and you just know any minute it can, and it has popped before, and you're just waiting for it. And that's seems what fuels a lot of that, the the fear and and all that. But you know, because like I said, there there have been a lot of riots there, and a lot of officers have been hurt, a lot of inmates have been, been murdered, and you know, I've dealt with guys sawing off. I mean, they're they're I don't know, they're dicks. I guess I'm sorry, uh, sawing those off and cutting off other parts of their body and trying to sew their lips up, sew their eyes up, just crazy, crazy stuff. And um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I, I know I'm kind of rambling, but it's it's just all that goes into the darkness of it beyond being confined <laughs> for whatever crime that you committed you know that's what i'm saying it's all so so uh it's desolate i mean that's the, it's dire it's really a really a dire dire area and and then you know, like you said at the end of the day it, it got to the big one of my big reasons for leaving is twofold um it i i felt like i was trying to build sandcastles and by the end of the day, the water knocked them all back down, no matter how much, how high I build it. 
it just felt like I was not making really any difference, which is why, you know, I work with special needs adults now, you know, which, you know, me and my wife are very involved with advocacy with Epilepsy Foundation and special needs and, and things like that. And, um, and that's where our heart was always has been, but this was, uh, this was my, this was my day job. But now luckily I can do, do that during the day and help folks out when I'm not writing. But, um, on, and the second reason, I had a good friend who was – I have a team called the Caldwell County Paranormals, and we do investigations and stuff. I don't call it a ghost hunting thing because – first of all, I don't know if it's a ghost. I can't tell you what those things are. I would be – I could speculate, but I'd be a, I'd be a liar if I, if I told you I know definitively what, what those are. So, But uh, I had a friend that was on our team, a good uh, – pretty religious guy, a Catholic kid. And uh, trained him. I looked, you know, I remember when he came in and I trained him, and he was sort of like a little brother to me. And stuff got to the point where he was being oppressed by so much stuff in the prison. He went, he well, he went home one day and put a shotgun in his mouth and blew his brains clean out. And wow. that was probably I was about six months before I before I left because that was a really good. Uh, I'm gonna say good, but that was a real sharp shock to my system to go. Get out, get out now. You've you've been wanting to get out, and uh, yeah, now it's time to go. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, sure. So, at what point in time did you decide? Hey, I think I've got enough information here to where I I can write a book that I think people would be interested in. And when you do get to that point, what's the next steps to actually turning it into a reality? Well. Above and beyond all the stuff of this, I mean, you guys kind of remember my background. Um, I was a, a kid that always grew up, and I'd, I'd saw different things as a kid and, and was exposed to different type of paranormal stuff as a kid, and I had an interest in it. And so I studied that in the libraries, you know, so I was always had an interest in that. And so by the time guys like Art Bell come along and, and all that, uh, I would be listening to these radio shows and we're fans, you know, and sometimes I'd call into a show kind of like, you know, kind of like Kevin did and be like, hey, I really like what you guys are doing or I really dug that last guy you had on, you know, his, his take on this and that is like whatever. Well, I spoke to a fella and uh, he, had, he had written a book and uh, that I thought was pretty neat. Anyway, and just touching base with him, and just in conversation, he just said, "Hey, I see you used to be a guard." I said, "Yeah," and I said, "You ever see anything weird?" And I touched on a few things, and said, "Have you ever considered writing these down?" I was like, "Well, I mean, maybe just little short paragraphs from my own remembrances as I get older, you know, and all the details get fuzzy." And he said, uh, "Do you got maybe a page or two of that?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm gonna take a look at it." And he looked at it. And he's like, "Do you mind if I show this to somebody?" I'm like, "Like who?" He says, "Well." There, there's an editor for for a company. It was Permuted Press. He says I, I kind of worked with them, and I was curious to show it to him. I said, "Does he need a good laugh?" I said, "I'm not a writer." And he says, "Well, just humor me." I said, "I mean, I, that's fine." So anyway, a uh, week or two went by, and he got back in touch with me, and he said, "Hey, uh, you got any more? You got any more of those stories?" And I said, what you know? By then, I've what's the old saying? I've slept since then. I'm like, "What are you talking about?" He says. Remember those pages you sent me? I said, oh, yeah, those little short stories. I said, yeah, what about them? He says, well, do you have more of them? I said, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I do. I mean, they're just paragraphs. He said, listen, he said, do you think you get me? You could get me 65,000 words? And I said, for what? Uh, you know, and he says, well, for uh, for the book you're going to write. I said, buddy, I, I've told you before, I'm not a writer. He says, well, maybe not yet. You know, and it was that. It was that strange. It was uh, they said they want to release your book. And I'm like, 
oh, you mean the book I haven't wrote yet? And they said, yeah. And so I said, well, let me see what I can do. I'll, you know, and, and the guy kind of just kind of grandfathered me through it and, and sort of showed me, you know, this is how you do this and that. Because like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm a Western Kentucky kid. You know, I actually left school, you know, in high school and, and I mean, I went back and got my GD and stuff. But, you know, and, and I like to read, but I'm certainly not a an, an English professor or anything by that by that stretch. And uh, but, you know, he kind of showed me some of the stuff that, you know, I missed in some of the classes <laughs> I didn't go to. But and, and it just sort of came like that. And then eventually the book actually went to print and ebooks and stuff like that. And so I was kind of surprised. But, you know, it, it went on to the point where people, you know, I was thinking no one's going to be interested in this book. You know, there might be a few guards or something, old guards that was curious about old stories and stuff. But yeah, I was really surprised if folks, especially in the, the initial area, seemed really interested in it. And which it was surprised me when I was hearing that people like out of country were buying it or whatever like that and it just it struck me weird because i'm i've always tried to stay when you know and have no reason not to be a humble guy and it just kind of was like okay what's okay is this going to become a thing and i thought well okay this month it's interesting you know people too and whatever and it's been almost a year and people still seem interested in it so um during the time during the time i was putting this book together um, our, our oldest son, who who uh, we adopted, passed. He uh, he had a really hard seizure and he passed away. And writing the book is one of the things that kind of helped keep me focused to kind of cope with uh, cope with that. And so I just kept writing. You know, I kept writing. You know, about other places I've had interest in. There's a place called uh, the Western Kentucky uh, or, or the Western Western State Hospital in Hopkinsville. Obviously, Kentucky, which was usually called the uh, Western Lunatic Asylum. And so I started working on that, you know, just to write it down. I didn't know if they'd want to release it, and which is funny. Uh, since I'd spoke to you a while back, they had uh, actually went ahead and sent me a contract for that. So that hopefully will be released in 2018, probably spring, spring or summer. But so I guess maybe it's going to be a thing. I, I don't see me, you know, being a jet setter or nothing. But, I mean, as long as I'm able to write and I, I like writing, then – and people seem to seem to enjoy these these old uh, stories and stuff. But you know, the thing was, what's I think struck people is the fact that these are true stories. These aren't just me dreaming this up. These are people coming and telling me that. And like with the first book, I've probably interviewed and got stories from good three to four hundred people. And what's so weird was, like you said, it's like uh, like. I've got again. I'm trying to remember who said these things. Like you have a crowd of people. One person starts starts clapping, and maybe one or two more people. Everybody else will start clapping. It was like that. It's it, it seemed like once people said, "Oh, well, okay, well, it's okay to talk about these stories," because it, it, you know how it is in the South. Well, we just don't talk about certain subjects, you know, and that's just that's just one of those subjects they didn't talk about there. And uh, but once it was, I kind of opened the floodgate for it. Then everybody was coming up to me and signing and going, "Hey, well, you didn't talk about." receiver's basement or why didn't you talk about kelly moss you know there's a famous haunting there and i said well i didn't have enough stories i didn't have enough details and he said well here let me tell you what i know and so i'm actually in the process is while this second book is going through the final editing and all that i'm actually working on a follow-up for ksp along with a, another book which is about a an orphanage slash kind of like a catholic church in Morganfield, Kentucky, that's had a lot of really, really weird activity going on. So, I mean, I'm, I'm keeping pretty busy between dealing with the kids and these two mutts that are running around my feet and, and my uh, 
teaching life skills to special needs adults. So well, I'm staying hopping. First of all, I want to send my condolences on the loss of your son. Well, I appreciate that. And then, um, you know, I, I like the fact that, that it seems like most of what you're doing, you're concentrating on the state of Kentucky. So that's kind of a, a cool thing. When we started our show, the the whole hillbilly horror stories, it was originally just going to be based on nothing but southern uh, stories because there's so the, the South is is rich with those kind of stories. But as we started getting um, more and more listeners from all over the country and, and, and outside of the country, we decided to expand that. And it just kind of grew from one thing to another. And, and, you know, it may be different in the book business. It may be the same, but, you know, we get constant feedback and it's immediate feedback. We do a show and within a couple of hours, we can have people writing us, giving their opinion. And that kind of immediate gratification works well on, on us be able to make adjustments to, to make it uh, a better fit for everybody rather than, you, you know, just a, a certain group of people. So that's how we've been able to grow the show. Uh, I think maybe with the writing, it may be a little different to where uh, the people who read, I don't think they necessarily care as much where the locations of the stories are as long as it's a good story. But I could be completely wrong on that. Well, it, it, you know, honestly, it depends. Um, that's the thing where, you know, I've had officers since the time I've left. Because uh, once, once I left, uh, I'll be honest, I pulled back from a lot of my contacts because I just wanted to, like you said, clean, clean that mud vein out. I want to get all that poison out of my head from the prison. I want to be way away from it. And But slowly in time, the ones that were good fellas, and were not like good fellas like Joe Pesci, but good folks <laughs> um, that I kept in contact with. And, you know, you know, once you're in, you're never out, that type of thing. Uh, and, you know, there's folks that I care about that still work there, and we keep in contact. But as time went on, the books come out, I would have somebody write me, like, oh, my God, you know, uh, I would been, I've been dealing with whatever for about two weeks. I picked up your book, and it's the exact same situation. You know, and, um, you know, sometimes it's exactly the same sort of setup. Sometimes it's 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 increased. Sometimes it's decreased. So uh, it's, you know, even though I'm no longer in the system, I, you know, once they all say I have eyes everywhere, I have eyes in there just watching and give me feedback about everything. So it's it's really interesting now to do that. And and the thing is, you have some folks, like you said, that just want a good scare. Then there's also some people that want a little bit of the history about the place, which I try to include. Um I wouldn't necessarily say that I write in a Southern Gothic style, but there's probably definite elements of that. I mean, my sort of literary spirit animal was guys like Stephen King. You know, I mean, the first sign I ever did, I had an it shirt on, hmm. uh, and which, and then that led me to guys like Lovecraft and Poe and and a bunch of other old, older obscure uh, horror writers and, and sci-fi writers. But um, but it's really strange because. When you bump into some people at a, at a signing, maybe you know them. Maybe they work at your Walmart or maybe they – whatever. And, or they'll have a story like, well, you're my, my granddaddy or my late husband or my whatever worked down there. Or my, my son's going there now. I'm buying the book for him to kind of keep an eye out for some of this stuff. So it's almost like a it, – it went from just an entertaining read hopefully to somebody's memories and somebody's – and they're almost like preparing these kids like, now look, if you see this, don't freak out. You know, Mr. Asher saw this, and this is how he dealt with it. So it's almost like a uh, preparatory type thing, you know, for some of these kids, and which is humbling and, and sort of really extremely weird at the same time. Um, because here, here, I don't know if you guys have like auctions and optimist clubs and things like that. Well, we had, uh, which is basically like they help 
like the youth of the local area and they raise money to get you know kids that need shoes shoes for, for school and anyway they were having an auction and they said hey do you, do you have anything you want to put in an auction and i'm still sitting here like i don't know i might have like some uh some old kerosene heaters or something and they said well well we were thinking more like your book and i'm like yeah and, and back in my life, who would want to buy my book but it was like well i mean i, I, I guess i could and i'd started making uh do, are you familiar with what a chit is uh, is is that the the little uh, round metal pieces that you yeah, wear? Yeah. Like, yes. Well, kind of like like they use in the uh, the coal mines. I got a friend of mine. Uh, <laughs> he's up from New Mexico, and and uh, I says, says you know what a chit is? He said, I've had many. I said, no, no, it's not 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 that type of <laughs> a chit, a piece of metal. <laughs> Which they they did have the phrase whenever you would come in there because you have to have that to get certain tools, so they know who who has what watch stuff and says you know look you you don't got shit you ain't getting shit <laughs> so uh which i don't know i always thought that was kind of funny but but now you know i started marketing a little bit of stuff i'm making you know like bookmarkers bookmarker chits you know with ribbon you can put them in your book and find your page and keychains and it's weird to the point now where because a lot of times people will request like a eight by ten like a promotional thing and um which is super awkward um, cause I'm, I'm just big kind of like, I don't know. It's like if uncle Fester was a prison guard, that's kind of what I look like. <laughs> so, or something like, yeah, somebody says, no, I mean, you look more like a uh, butter being the wrestler. I said, thanks buddy. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's so much more of a compliment. <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah. I, I think I'll stick with Fester if it's okay with you. But, um, but yeah, I mean, and that was really nice. And, and, um, so it's so strange to see that, but the thing is, like you said, even after these years, um, I'll still wake up um, thinking I'm in the middle of a count and the count keeps changing. Or that the, I'll go down the halls and I'll come back up and it's a, I'm in a different cell house. And then there's stuff going on in the cell house that I can't stop, like ghostly stuff, and wake up, you know, like nightmares and stuff. Um, so, I mean, that stays with you. I mean – I don't know if you call it PTSD or something, but it, it definitely just it, it, your mind revisits stuff, and I catch myself, especially the more I write about stuff, it does that. And but what I've tried to do was I try to keep when I write about stuff, I write about stuff that's kind of fantastical, but I try to make it where it's common to where everybody can relate to it. And there's just different stuff I you know I, I find interesting. You know, everybody knows a haunted house in town. Everybody knows you know some old legend about an old country road just that type of kind of if you guess you want to call it homespun that's fine but that's okay you know I'll, I'll roll with that but but yeah that's that's the that's the thing i've i've if i i guess if i've got a niche it's that you know i do try to write a lot about the kentucky in the south just because um there's so much you get so much negative type stuff and so much stereotypical stuff um it's just one of those things, like you said. It's it's good to see that there's other facets to people in the South, and other than you know wearing overalls with a jug with the X's on it and all that mess. <laughs> well, do me a favor. Let's look back to the uh, the book uh, "Hauntings of, of the Kentucky State Penitentiary" and and give me a story out of that that was one of your favorites to write about. Oh my goodness! Well, I mean, I'll tell you, I've, I've had a couple different little situations myself there's a place called four cell house and there the way it's set up it's like uh how do i describe this okay it's like if you have two halves of uh like you cut a 
watermelon in half. You know how you got seeds up one side, then you only flip it over on the other side, and it's got seeds going up the other side mm-hmm. with a little little slight divider between the seeds and down the middle. Well, the way the sale house was set up, it was tiered probably seven tiers high. There's a left side is divided by gates, and then on the other side is, uh, is divided by gates on the right, which is called Riverside because it faces the uh, Cumberland River, which runs through there now. And the other side is prison side, which faces the prison. Anyway, I was working the control centers and kept seeing uh, weird movement in the back of Pony River, which is at the very bottom. It's a, it's a walk by itself. It connects with the showers. Well, I kept seeing this and that, and, and long story short, uh, saw like orbs and just weird stuff. But it's not just like a dust orb, but like a glue. It's almost like you put like a glow stick in a in a neon or like a white balloon and just like a really bright neon stick and uh and it would it would come up and down the hall do kind of loopy loops and then end up shooting past the camera and out of my sight uh which i was inside the control center so i couldn't get out and i kept kind of seeing this and the officer come by was asking me about it and well it happened again you know and and finally it, it was almost the end of the shift he's like asher what are you seeing I know something's going on with you. You, you look white as a sheet. And I said, you, you'll think I'm nuts. You know, it's, you know, I've only been here about four months. He says, I almost guarantee I won't. You know, I was an older guy, real laid back. I said, well, I kept seeing this weird kind of shadow. It kind of like an orb or something, almost like it grew out of it, almost like a bubble coming out of water. And he kind of nodded and said, yeah, that sounds about right. I said, what, what, what the heck is that? Have you seen it? He says, man, about everybody is not – that's worked in that control center seen it and they said uh that used to be the old death row and a lot of a lot of the guys that were on that walk were the guys that were going to be executed said also there's been a whole lot of stabbings right right in that area of that fence so you know and and that was something i personally saw probably my favorite was a story of old red uh there was a fella who i trained again and I knew this boy since he was 15 or 16 years old. He, here, in, here in the South, there was not a whole lot to do but hit country roads and, you know, have a beer and listen to music. You know, that's kind of how a lot of teenagers did that back then. And um, so anyway, uh, this boy used to come into the store I worked and kind of kept him out of trouble. But anyway, as he got older, he'd come to work there. And he was working down in the, inf- the infirmary and kept noticing – just weird, weird sounds, weird rattlings, tapping, scraping, and he thought maybe there's a guy in the hospital uh, being treated, and he thought maybe he was trying to break out. So he kept checking it out. The guy wasn't doing anything, and he noticed, you know, the locks. There's padlocks. There's like feed trays on the bottom of these doors, and he would see the locks raise up, like just look somebody's inspecting it, and slams down. And the next one on down the walk, I'll lift up like he's looking at it, slamming down, all the way up and down the row all throughout that walk and uh they started having that started having the lights flickering in this anyway it, it culminated with he was about ready to go he was about ready to leave i mean he was like i'm not about to do this and he said you know look i only got like an hour or so left i'm gonna give me a cup of coffee calm my nerves and i'm very seriously thinking about dropping a dropping a letter of that i'm done in the captain's box in the morning and i'm gone well he was in the kitchen the little kitchenette and uh He's trying to make some coffee, and you know that feeling like you feel somebody walking behind you? He got that feeling, and I'm sure – I don't know if you've ever – you know, granddad, uncle, heck, maybe you've done it yourself, sitting there after maybe eating steak or something, get like a little piece of meat in your teeth. So you get a little toothpick and kind of like that. Yep. Well, he ha- he had that right by his ear, 
he dropped that coffee, <laughs> high-tailed it. I mean, dropped it on the floor. It's just left it. Run up to the front desk, uh, and he called me. And uh, he was the only other. He said, "You're the only person I could think of. The only person that might not think I'm crazy." I said, "Well, what's going on?" And he said, "Man, there's stuff down here, spooks or something." And I said, "Okay, let me let me guess." And so I started talking about the locks, talking about the lights, and he said. Yeah, man, how did you know? I said, okay. He said, were there footsteps? He said, yeah, there was footsteps as I was leaving the kitchen. I said, okay, but it ain't a regular step, is it? And he said, no, it it wasn't really like rubber. I said, it's almost like a clop, like a wooden hill, ain't it? He said, how did you know that? He says, I've dealt with the same thing down there. And the story was there was a trustee, inmate trustee, when there was an old, uh, another old infirmary in there. And Apparently, there's a young guy that got manhandled by some older guys, and they were afraid they were, he was going to rat on them and get them more time. So supposedly, they set fire to the old infirmary and to, to kill this kid. So anyway, Red, which this guy's name was Red, he was kind of like a kind of a red bone guy, you know, a, a mixed guy. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he's running trying to get these guys out. Well, he supposedly got all the, all the staff out and and found the boy. Uh, who I think I think the kid that they, they attacked was a little special needs, and I think that's another reason it stays with me. But anyway, he was huddled up under the bed, scared. He carried him out, and by, you know by the time he finally got everybody out, he, he'd got a lot of burns, a lot of smoke inhalation, and supposedly he he, he passed on from uh, from the injuries. Well, uh, some of the equipment that was in the old church went down there, including some of like his old, you know, like mops and things and stuff like that. So I think things that were considered his livelihood went into the old, to the new hospital. And I said, look, he's just making rounds. I said that's what they used to do. Trustees would check locks. Trustees would do this and that. I said, just tell them, just say, hey man, I got this. Go lay down. We thank you. I've got this. Well, he went out there and did that, and within that next hour, things stopped, and he was able to stay there. He worked there for another six or seven years before he went into like a probation parole. So it, it's it's that kind of weird, quirky connection I think I'll always have with the place, and and that's the sort of things you deal with. I mean, you you deal with stuff scratching at people. You have you know uh, things moving around in cell houses. You have. You know, doors rattling like somebody's kicking the crap out of them. Um, you know, people moving downstairs, people throwing things, people touching, getting touched, having their hair pulled, having their having their equipment moved around like somebody's just clowning them. Um, it's just, it's just, it covers the it covers the gamut, and that it goes beyond just inside there because there was a lot of um, stuff going on outside the walls too because there's trustees out there and there's people you know that. That got hurt, and but you got to remember. I mean, this place has a still has the dungeon under the prison uh, where they would lash guys and hang them up on the walls and just let them sit there, you know. And they every so often come in there, throw throw water in their face, and just to remind them, hey, you know, you messed up. This is what happens when you mess up. And to this day, we had had a flood. Uh, I don't know if it was two thousand nine, two thousand eight, and I was. Uh, they had the floors lifted up in the main main part of the admin building because and i was hearing something I was like what is that noise i said is there pipes busted loose and he said no that's the water from the flooding out of the this pipe up in the in the yard i said well why am i hearing clanging and then he said here come here and he flashed the light down there and you could still see those old chains rattling against the walls oh, i wow. mean 
I mean, it's still there. I mean, that's what I'm saying. And anything connected with that type of torturous ordeals, you know, I don't see how it couldn't carry something with it. Especially with all that limestone, you know, you touched on it earlier, but I mean, it's 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 pretty common belief out there that this that anything that's heavily limestone, that stuff just kind of holds all that energy in. Right, and and that's the thing too is that again about the South, um, we we ha- we cling to our to some of our ways, good or bad, and that memory. It's like it seems like a lot of times in bigger cities, which you know I like bigger cities, but I, I can't I couldn't live in one. Um, but it's a thing where everything's so fast. There's a building here two years ago. It's getting knocked down for a new building. So the landscape's totally constantly changing in the South. You know, we see like houses that are like you know, old antebellum style homes or whatever, and it's like, wow, what a treasure. We need to keep it like that. You know, it's, there's just a different mindset. And I think for the fact, almost in a way, I guess you could say, uh, we respect ghosts in that point of the old times. And uh, so maybe we kind of facilitate that a little bit. In fact, I don't know if you, I don't know if you can hear this. Um, we're about two streets down from the Methodist church and their, their bells are going off. So if you're hearing a no. <laughs> playing, I think it was like how sweet thou art or something. It sounds like, but anyway, again, that's just another facet of, of this area. And I like that. It's, it's sort of a, sort of a bittersweet thing. Um, that's what I, that's what I love about writing about this area because there is so much history here. And, uh, but you know, and that's, in, and even in the prison systems, you know, there's, there's elements there. They'll still, when it's time for lockup, they don't have buzzers. They go out there and clang a bell, ding, 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 and they know it's lockup. You know, and uh, could they update it? Sure, but why well, fix it if it ain't broken? Well, Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. It's been a fun, fun talk to. But believe it or not, we've been talking for almost forty-five minutes, and it just seems like it's been about ten minutes. But the book is Hauntings of the Kentucky uh, Penitentiary. Um, Kentucky State Penitentiary. I'm sorry, yeah. Kentucky State Penitentiary. And uh, why don't you tell everybody the easiest way to get a copy of that book and be able to stay in contact with you on social media? Well, uh, I'm on. You know, let me see. Let me let me go through the list. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Google. Uh, I'm on a whole lot of different uh, sites. But my I, I do have a website which is all lowercase and together. It's Steve. With an with an e, there's no dot or a capitalized nothing. It's like Steve with an extra e, and then Asher dot com, uh, which will take you to like all the different social media sites and and all that. But also, you can find my book on. It should be able to order it through most book companies, uh, bookstores, but also Amazon. Uh, if most people go, people go to Amazon, Books a Million, um, places like that. And uh, and I urge the reader if they do seem to like it um if they don't mind maybe go on amazon or goodreads and you know give me a little uh give me a little uh ratings there it always helps to kind of get it out into bigger markets and which you know if someone wants to contact me directly and like i said it's you know if it's about the book or whatever that's fine i don't want anything about you know penis enlargement pills or anything crazy like that i don't want any spam but uh my personal email is and i'll explain why it's called this because you look at me funny it's uh, all lower case and together, I L A S H E R S at yahoo.com. Now, I know that says eyelashes, and I'll explain why. Uh, at the time when my wife helped me uh, set up that email, we were living in southern Illinois, and 
which is basically Western Kentucky, but with a little bit of higher, a uh, little bit of higher, um, what do you call it, a uh, credit score. But uh, when she set it up, she, she was going to put a space or a dash or something, but for whatever reason, she didn't. So I got to tell people that my email is eyelashers at yahoo.com. <laughs> gets me some looks, but that's okay. Well, and just for the record, those penis enlargement pills don't work. So I'm just, Dang. Just uh, so don't waste your money on them should that come around, like I've done seven or eight different times. Um, that's right. I'll just get my wife some, like, stronger glasses. That's, that's, that's what it's all about. Well, there it is. Steve, hopefully we can get you back on when, when some of these other books are released, and uh, we can talk about them as well. Man, that sounds great, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, and again, like I said, uh, anybody wants to look into uh, some of the, you know, the, keeping up with some of my stuff on the other books, you can go to, to, to permutedpress.com. That's my, my uh, publisher. And uh, feel free to leave comments and suggestions and, and all that good stuff. All right. Well, thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, brother. I appreciate you having me on. Take care and God bless. Thanks. I want to say a big thank you to Steve Asher. Now, that was a fun interview. Yeah, it was, Steve. It was very entertaining. Thank you. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and post on the um, the Facebook page. It's a good time to tell everybody, go to our Facebook page, Hillbilly Horror Stories. Find us on Twitter. But I'm going to actually post a link uh, to Amazon where you can actually buy the book from there. Yes, please do. Very interesting. And next week's show is on uh, the Mall Dyer. I don't expect anybody to know what that is. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, well, well you I know that's not and, a big shock. You don't know what it will be <laughs> when we sit down to the mics either. <laughs> but it, it's going to be a really cool show. I think you'll know this. I hope you've enjoyed the show. This show was almost two hours long. So for those of you who've been wanting a longer show, you got it. So we'll see you guys next week. Peace out. <laughs> to thank you folks for kindly dropping in. You're all invited back next week to this locality to have a heaping helping of their hospitality. Hillbilly, that is. Y'all come back now, here.